This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 38 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by another awesome guest. She is an iOS developer at Intuit, an Apple Watch enthusiast, and a fantastic conference speaker. It's Christina Fox. Welcome to the show, Christina. Hi, I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you on. So uh, I think most people listening to the show have kind of like a special relationship to Silicon Valley. You know, we follow Apple and all these tech companies and we hear about, you know, what a kind of tech centered place that is. And we maybe go there for WWDC and things like that. Uh, but you arguably have an even more special relationship to Silicon Valley because you live there. Yeah, totally. So what's it like to live in a place like that, that like is so centered around tech? Do you kind of feel it on a day to day basis? Yes, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Silicon Valley. I would say it's definitely a slight exaggeration on what goes on here, but it comes pretty close. There's a lot of uh, grains of truth in the show. And so I remember one time when my parents came up here, it was, we, I was driving them to the Intuit campus where I work and we just happened to drive by one of the Google self-driving cars, the Waymo cars. And I just casually pointed out like, Oh yeah, there, there's one of the self-driving cars. And they just kind of looked at me like, really? This, this is your life now? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, you're really just like, I feel like I'm just in the middle of technology. There's so much going on here. It, it's always pushing and being at the forefront of any, any of the like major advancements. So stuff like the self-driving car or like seeing a lot of like Tesla model threes and everything all over the place. Like that's just kind of commonplace here. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to sound like I take a lot of the stuff for granted or anything, but it's it just happens to be here all the time. Yeah, totally. I can imagine. Like uh, every time I go visit uh, Silicon Valley or California in general, like it's it's its own little kind of microcosmos, right? <laughs> Where like so many things are are happening there in terms of tech and it really shows. And I, I have seen Silicon Valley. It's it's a really great show and a lot of it hits very close to home, even as someone who doesn't live there, but just works as a developer. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely say that one of the other aspects that's really nice about living and working here is being able to just network at pretty much any time. I know that a lot of us tend to get together during WDC when everyone is around, but one of the nice things about it being one of the tech centers of the world, especially up in San Francisco, is that you're able to casually meet up with people after um, we have a bunch of I think about three different iOS meetups that tend to meet fairly regularly. And so, oh wow, yeah, um, there's like the Swift language user group meetup that just recently started up again. Um, there's a Silicon Valley iOS developers meetup. And then there was one more, there are a couple of more other ones aside from that. There's like women in tech uh, specific ones too, but just being able to network with people on a more casual basis outside of conferences or other such events is one of the things that I personally really enjoy too. 
Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do, like uh, obviously also going to conferences and bigger events, but also like local meetups and really just like meet a lot of developers and hang out and have fun. And that's something that I always try to do when I'm when I'm traveling, like if there's some local meetup, I usually try to go to it. And also here where I live, like we, we don't have so many meetups here in, in Krakow because it's, you know, much, much smaller city. Uh, but whenever we do have one, like it's always so much fun to get together with people and it's uh, it's one of those things that is really awesome as a developer, like that we have this strong community, both kind of on the internet and talking to each other and, you know, like like podcasts and things like that, but also like locally in our cities where we can go and meet up with other people who are like like-minded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling is to meet up with other iOS developers. I remember one time uh, my husband and I, who's also works in iOS, he and I happened to be in an area of Mexico where um, one of one of the people we met up with at I believe it was at WODC. Um, but we uh, we just happened to be traveling to the area where he lives and he offered to give us a tour around his town, which was so amazing. Like being able to see a brand new place from the eyes of a local. Was, yeah. And um, there was another instance uh, where we met up with uh, Peter Steinberger in in Vienna. It was it was really kind of a funny story because we um, we went on a European tour on uh, with like a group of other uh, like eighteen to thirty five year olds. Essentially, we were being taken into the heart of Vienna, and we let our tour guide know that hey, we're gonna meet up with this random person that we met online <laughs> on Twitter, um, and he just kind of gave us this look of like, uh, are you sure you guys? <laughs> gonna be okay and we're like oh yeah don't worry about it doesn't sound scary at all yeah, not at all um but yeah and then we had you know we ended up having dinner and walking around the city um but then we were like um, i think we were like a minute late coming back to meet up with the rest of the group and our you could see the look on our tour guide's face like oh man did i lose them are they gonna be okay and he looked so relieved once we were back oh that's so funny yeah because in there's not a lot of industries that are similar to ours, like where you can just meet up with some random person. I mean, not random, but someone that you, you know, got to know over the internet and, uh, you know, just have a lot of fun and you share so much in common, you know. It just takes usually five minutes and maybe a beer or two, and then we just start complaining about Xcode, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So uh, when you're not uh, meeting Peter Steinberger in Vienna and hanging out with cool developers, uh, you are working at Intuit, uh, which does accountancy software, right? Yes, uh, we're a financial software company, and so we have two main products, which is TurboTax, um, which is generally a little bit more US-centric. It helps... Uh, personal consumers with their taxes, their like end of year taxes. Um, other than that, I work specifically on an app called QuickBooks Self-Employed, which helps freelancers and contractors manage their self-employed business finances. So managing things like income and expenditure, um, doing mileage tracking if they do any driving for work, as well as being able to send simple invoices. And so I pretty much work on a, an app that is technically based in accounting, but um, it's supposed to be in simple terms meant for people who don't really necessarily have that much accounting experience. Yeah, which I think a lot of developers kind of fall into that category, right? Where so many of us are self-employed in one way or another. Maybe, you know, you have some apps on the app store and that's like a side business for you or you work as a freelancer or something like that. I mean, it's very, very common. And I think what's what's common among all developers, that's another thing we can talk about over beers is, <laughs> is uh, just, you know, how complex some of this stuff can be. And 
you know, most people don't like to spend a lot of time with it. You know, we want to ship our apps, not really, you know, get down into to our accountancy and, and all the books and all that stuff. We kind of want something else or someone else to kind of take care of that for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting because a lot of people, when you think of like financial software, it's like, oh, it's kind of sounds like a kind of boring opportunity to work on. But I absolutely love it because exactly because of what you said, like people would rather spend their time doing the things that they got into the self-employed or their self-employed or small business for. And um being able to work on software that makes handling finances easier and letting them get to what they'd rather do really brings a lot of joy to my life because I feel like I'm actually making a difference in in their daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's been kind of a big eye-opener for me as well. Like uh, As m- many people who listen to the show know is that I used to work for Spotify and one of the big appeals there was that I worked on like a really big product with lots and lots and lots of users. Uh, But since then I've worked on more small projects like on with orders of magnitude smaller user bases, but that still have like a big impact on, on the people that use them's lives. Like, you know, I work with e-learning software and things like that, that, you know, the, the users really love it. And uh, you really hear from a lot of people that, you know, it saves them time and it makes their work more enjoyable. And yeah, I can imagine it's the same for you. Like, it doesn't have to be like a huge user base, but that you can make that impact on the user's actual day-to-day lives. Yes, Absolutely. I I think one of my favorite reviews in the app store has been from a visually impaired user. Um, we went through a lot of great lengths to enable accessibility within our app. And it really shows because we got an amazing five-star review from a, a blind user who says that she recommends it to pretty much anyone in her network who is also self-employed simply because our app is you know, is able to, is able to be used by a visually impaired user. And so things like that really, like really warm my heart because I'm enabling people who are in a slightly disadvantaged area to be able to live their lives as, as normal human beings. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really, really cool. Another thing that you do uh, from time to time is that you, like me, uh, speak at conferences. And uh, I met you just a few months ago uh, at NS Spain, uh, in great conference in, in Spain, in northern Spain, uh, where you gave a really great talk called Embracing Change, uh, which was about kind of, uh, well, embracing change in your in your life in general, right? But more specifically in your career, you know, when things might change and you can use that as kind of a learning opportunity. So what kind of inspired that talk? It was one that was very close to my heart because it was something that I had been living with for about a, uh, since about a, about a year before I gave that talk. My team had recently undergone a huge reorg, and this is per- fairly typical at larger companies, but yeah. <laughs> essentially we went from about six iOS engineers on a small app to almost 25. Um, so could almost quadruple that number. Yeah. Wow. Essentially. And on top of that, we ended up going through a large redesign of the QuickBooks self-employed product. We ended up doing a language rewrite. So we had pr- been primarily in objective C before that and went and, um, we're moving to do all feature development in Swift and uh, just a plus like a, a ton of other things um and so it was a really interesting look at 
how to adapt to change, both from the team dynamic perspective, as well as how to handle a, a, a ton of work all at one time. Um, and so it was kind of a look at both of those sides. And then personally for me, it also was a look at what it kind of took to become, to kind of grow into more of a senior engineer role. Yeah. Because during that time, I was kind of doing the transition between being more junior in my career and moving into more, more of a senior role. Um, and so I talked through all of those different aspects uh, in this talk at NS Main. Yeah, that's really cool. And sometimes all of these things, they end up becoming kind of like a perfect storm, right? <laughs> where, you know, you can have these long periods where, you know, you're working on your features, you're fixing some bugs, but there's not like anything really big going on. And then all of a sudden, like everything hits you at once, like new language, new features, new design. Oh, by the way, we're doing a reorg. <laughs> and yeah, that can be really challenging sometimes. Yep, totally. And on top of reorg, it's like getting a new management chain and everything. It's things that I guess maybe don't necessarily have to deal with that smaller companies that much, but tends to be something that happens again. Yeah. Like I said, at larger companies. Um, and so, yeah, perfect storm, absolutely perfect way of describing it. Yeah. And we want to get uh, back to this topic a little bit later in the show when we want to talk specifically about kind of how you can grow as an engineer in general and some tips that we have for, you know, making that kind of journey from being more like a junior developer into, you know, more of a senior engineer that takes more of a like larger responsibility. Uh, but we want to start first by talking about the Apple Watch, because you've done quite a lot of Apple Watch development. And like I mentioned in the intro, you've been very enthusiastic about watchOS and, and this different aspects of it. Uh, we also want to take this opportunity later to discuss a little bit about a very, very commonly asked question or a commonly suggested topic, which is the difference between building UIs in code versus doing it in a storyboard. Uh, and it really ties into watch development as well, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but we sh I think we should just dive in. So Christina, why don't you start us off by giving us a little bit of an overview of watchOS and kind of what is what is different about watchOS compared to something like like iOS development? Absolutely. So uh, if you have been, if you've done anything similar to developing like a today extension or an iMessage extension, it can be very similar to doing a watchOS app. Now it's, it's very similar to that in that it is a sandboxed environment. And so you have uh, kind of two separate areas between iOS and watchOS. Um, but watchOS is slightly different in that instead of just having an extension, you have a watch app also, which tends to house a lot of your uh, image assets and any data assets that you might want to display on your watch app. The two operating systems communicate via a communication framework called watch connectivity, um, which essentially allows you to pass data back and forth to each other. So this is one thing that does differ from other extension development where you primarily will use app groups. Um, in order to transfer data between the two. Right. It seems like from Apple's perspective, they wanted to manage the data transfer probably because uh, battery management is uh, much more important on, on the Apple Watch than, than other extensions that live on your phone. And so they came up with a brand new communication framework to do that data transfer. 
Yeah. And as far as I've understood it, I haven't done a ton of watchOS development myself. I've just been kind of playing around with it, building some prototypes and things like that. But uh, the idea behind watch connectivity seems to be that you as the developer, you don't really care so much about what technology your data is being transferred with, whether that's Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, uh, similar to kind of how uh, multi-peer connectivity works as well. Is that right? Yeah, it's something similar to that. You essentially can determine whether the options are based on one, what type of data you're trying to transfer, and two, when you necessarily need that data. And so they have something called instantaneous messaging, which allows you to transfer the data. Like say if you have your watch and your iPhone app open at the same time, you can do an instantaneous transfer and you are essentially determining when you need that data to be transferred over. Otherwise, there's another type of data transfer where you let the operating system determine when is the most optimal optimal time to transfer that data. And so that one, like that one can be used, for example, if, if you have a little watch game that you've built and uh, the user's just gotten past the level. And so you just want to transfer that data back to your phone so that it's it's stored in, internally in, in memory. Um, but that's not something the user actively needs to have show up on their phone right away. So you can let the, you can let watchOS determine when they want to do that data transfer. Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So one of them is more about like direct messaging between the two apps, like if they need to communicate right away. And the other one is like, well, the operating system will find a good time, perhaps when the device is charging or when I'm on Wi-Fi or something like that. So it will transfer at a, you know, with a much lower battery cost. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Say, for example, if you're doing another, if there's other uh, operations that are happening, and then they can do one large data transfer instead of that one one off opportunity. I, I will say that the the second the secondary one where it is transferring that data does go fairly quickly, so you won't see much latency uh, latency in terms of that data transfer. Yeah, that's uh, that's always good to know that uh, you know you can you can count on it happening in a mostly timely manner. So um, I guess like uh, the fact that you have this um, this app running on the watch and it has this kind of parent app, if you will, that it needs to communicate with occasionally or directly or in some other manner. I guess that also makes things a little bit more complex in terms of like how you have to design your data structures and your models and your database layer and things like that. Uh, is, is that like, um, something that makes things more complicated? Do you find yourself like more having to like do more architecture and system design in order to make things like kind of work well? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that is nice about watchOS development is that it, they are native apps. And so you can directly communicate with your, um, with your primary server, um, up in the cloud. Um, but if you're trying to do that data transfer with watch connectivity, then all of the objects need to be serializable. And so that means you're using data types like NS string or any, any primitive types, dictionaries and arrays. Um, but so you can't use custom objects like you would normally use within, within your own iOS app to do that transfer. So you can take like individual elements, say, say you have like a person object, uh, you can take the individual like first name and last name strings to be able to transfer, but you can't transfer your like custom person object across both iOS and watchOS. Um, so there's certain things that you typically have to watch out for. You have to be a little bit more careful on what kind of data you're, you're transferring and, and be mindful of like how large these uh, pieces of data are because it is being done over a Bluetooth connection and not, um, 
not as quickly as if it was being done, um, just your general communication from phone to server, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and one thing that is changing a lot with the watch is the fact that it now has cellular capability, at least some of the models. Uh, do you think that in the kind of long term could really change the way we're building watch apps? Because not only is the watch like getting cellular and, you know, you could imagine a future where all the Apple Watch models have cellular connectivity built in that is kind of mandatory. So you can like rely on it when you're designing your app. Uh, but also the fact that the watch is getting, getting quite fast. It started out as a kind of slow companion device, but it's growing up quite quickly and becoming more independent, if you will. So do you think that's, that's going to change watch development going forward? Yeah, I could definitely see that. I personally haven't been haven't been seeing much many of those examples aside outside from kind of the fitness area. Yeah. It seems like uh, like GPS fitness apps have really embraced being able to be untethered to phones now. But outside of that, it seems like a lot of other apps still seem to be relying on getting information from their phone. Since I, I don't, you probably have seen this when opening up other third party apps, a little screen that says, "Oh, can please open your iPhone app to be able right. to." you know, to be able to uh, use the watch app because they just need some sort of data transfer to go. Um, maybe it's some sort of user default or some sort of setting that um, allows the app, the watch app to know like what context it's in. Um, so for now, it seems like not n- people haven't taken advantage of it as much as as much as uh, I would have expected. But in the future, I can definitely see that being a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see similar problems uh, kind of on many Apple platforms when it comes to some piece of hardware that is not kind of ubiquitous, like not all users have it. One example that, that I've been kind of uh, struggling with as a, as a hobby game developer is with the Apple TV and the fact that you can't like design a game to only work with a game controller. Well, you, you can require it if you want to, but the market will be much, much more narrow because, you know, they don't ship a game controller in the box. And I guess it's the same with the Apple Watch. Like you, you could build an app that only works on cellular, I guess, but you know, it would be a kind of niche app in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And not because of the price point of the cellular watch too. That's, it's much more expensive than just the plain Wi-Fi one. Then you can also price out some consumers too. So the connectivity part and the kind of overall architecture of the system is, uh, is, is very different from just working with an iOS app. Uh, and another thing that is uh, quite different is uh, how UI development works. On watchOS, we are kind of forced to use storyboards and we're forced to build our UI in a more kind of declarative way. So uh, how do you feel about these differences? Like what's the like big difference for you working with UI development on the watch versus on with UI kits on, on iOS? This is a great question. I, I find that your storyboards, even though it's a much smaller interface, you only have, you know, 38 millimeters or actually now we're from 38 millimeters all the way up to 44 millimeters. Um, even though you're working on such a small screen size, uh, what tends to happen since you can't programmatically create new UI elements for watchOS development, you tend to have these really long, um, really long individual storyboards because you need to cram all of your different UI elements in. And um, you tend to have to hide and show uh, your visual elements more often on the watch. And so your storyboards tend to be a little bit more complex because because of this aspect. 
Yeah, because uh, even when using storyboards on iOS, uh, most developers tend to build like, you know, maybe a container and then maybe you add some subviews programmatically depending on the state and things like that. Uh, but on um, watchOS, we use these interface objects like WK interface objects. So we don't have access to like the raw UI views. Uh, that is, you know, operating under the hood. Uh, but instead, we're declaring more of these like interface objects that are then kind of rendered by the system. Uh, and like you mentioned, you know, in order to have a piece of UI, let's say you want to show a button only under certain conditions, that has to be included in your storyboard. That can't be like dynamically inserted after the fact. Exactly. Yeah, there seems to be a lot more state management when it comes to displaying all of your different watch ele- watch UI elements. And so what I like to do is there's a concept called groups. Um, it's, it's something that's found within the storyboard and it allows you to group elements together. One for kind of visual layout purposes, if you want to align things side by side with each other. Um, but also I like to use it as a way to kind of differentiate different parts of my interface. And so say, um, one of the, one of the things that I'm working on right now is being able to transition from one kind of visual layout to another. And so I have these two different groups of, of, um, UI elements and then have a, an animation that essentially moves from, moves from one of, one of these, uh, arrangements to another layout arrangement. Right. Yeah. That sounds uh, really interesting. So the way you do that is that you have all those configurations in your storyboard. And then like when your observer triggers or something, your state changes, you simply like hide and show. Yeah. You turn them on and off these different elements. Yes, exactly. And there, and then you can use an animation block too, to make it a, a little bit more fluid. Uh, you mentioned groups there earlier, and uh, that was one of the things when I first got started with watchOS and I was playing around with it and building some UIs was a really fascinating idea for me. And later, uh, this came to iOS as well and the Mac as well in the form of stack views, which is uh, basically, you know, pretty much the same thing. Stack views are, I guess, a little bit more powerful in, in how they operate. But the concept is, is very similar where you have a group of views. You just want to stack them together, either horizontally and vertically. And uh, that was something that when I started, uh, using those on the watch, I then immediately wanted to build something similar for, for iOS <laughs> because it's a very nice, I feel like metaphor. And that's why I also like stack views where you're kind of just putting these things together in a group and they just align automatically. Yeah. I, I loved that aspect of watch, watch development because it made it a lot easier for instead of having to deal with with um, all the different constraints, like say from a beginner's perspective, um, being able to just drag and drop uh, interface elements into the storyboard and having it automatically align was really, really, really convenient. If you're not familiar with how watch storyboards are laid out, it's basically a vertical stack view. And so every element that gets dragged in gets put on top of each other until you use, until you use a group to lay things out horizontally next to each other. So um, we mentioned some of the limitations of, of using um, using this way of building UIs, but there are also some ways that it can be kind of worked around. And one common way of doing so is using images. So you can generate an image, for example, on the phone even, and send it over to the watch and then displaying it in an image view. Uh, is that something that you've been doing as well, like using images for a more dynamic UI? Yeah, images are a great way of breaking up a lot of the generic Apple Watch UI elements. Um, and it brings a little bit of character to your, to your particular app, uh, simply because you can use, um, you can use 
images for celebrations. You can also use images if you loop them and in multiple frames as animations too. And so there's a lot of ways that you can bring much more life to your watch app and differentiate it from all the other watch apps that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen people use like images to draw graphs and all sorts of things that you mentioned also animations and yeah, it's like once you have an image view, you can really like do a lot of different things with a little bit of imagination. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's mostly just about, I think that's the thing that a lot of people struggle with is coming up with a concept that is small enough for the watch. And because I think one of the biggest problems with watch development nowadays is that especially in the very beginning, was that people wanted to pack so much in this little watch app. But when you're, when you know, when you're holding up your wrist like that and then trying to scroll through a bunch of different, you know, a bunch of different features on a watch, your your hand gets tired after a while. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a definitely a balancing act between coming up with a useful app, useful app that also isn't too complex um, for your users. And this is where like some of the limitations of the UI frameworks for the watch kind of also a little bit act as a strength, right? Where we're kind of forced to design these more simple experiences that are, you know, just get in and get out, like get something done quickly, which is really where the watch really shines. Definitely. I think the way that a lot of people were thinking of it in the beginning was just that they would be standalone apps. But really, really, you should be thinking about these watch apps as companion apps to what your main iOS app is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Another way to draw more custom UIs on the watch is using SpriteKit and even SceneKit, which is Apple's 2D and 3D game frameworks, which are kind of, you know, miraculously running on this super little tiny computer on your wrist, which I think is pretty cool. And uh, some people in the community, including people like Steve Tratton Smith, have used this in a, you know, a little bit of a creative way to like kind of build their own watch faces. And I've seen some other people like build really custom UIs using these kind of like 2D um, graphics and 2D assets and really doing this kind of custom drawing. Uh, is that something that you also see like as a as something that will kind of be mainstream at some point that you want to draw your own UI? Uh, and do you think that Apple will kind of uh, enable this in an easier way than having to use like a game engine? Yeah, I really love it, um, especially like from my perspective, because I'm working on on financial apps, I don't really get a chance to work with SpriteKit and SceneKit that often. And so I love the idea that Apple is branching out and um, exposing different areas to use to use these two frameworks um, and outside of like general game development. But aside, yeah, aside from that, it would be great to see other UI frameworks um being used to render kind of these dynamic, dynamic UIs, dynamic um, experiences. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the framework from Airbnb called Lottie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's I absolutely love this framework. We use it all the time within within my app. Essentially, like being able, like being able to use that for for watchOS development and generate um, not only because images do take up quite a lot of space and the storage storage on a watch tends to be much smaller than on a phone. Um, but then you're able to create these much these more complex animations that a developer might not be able to do 
being limited to just having, you know, groups and um, essentially horizontal and vertical movement throughout the screen. It's interesting that you mentioned Lottie, because for me, that's kind of very similar to how Wash development currently works, where you're essentially like creating a storyboard, which is like a serialized version of your UI. And then you have the watch run that. And, you know, Apple has most likely done that for battery saving reasons where, you know, if they can make more assumptions about the UI and take a bigger responsibility for it, they can save battery life. But it would be really cool if like the Airbnb engineers behind Lottie were able to like implement some kind of protocol for rendering UI. And then you could have that same thing as a, as a watch developer, you are declaring what you want your animation to look like through, through Lottie. And then, you know, the watch renders it. Yeah, totally. I I would love to see something like that happen. I'm not sure if it's technically feasible with the current um with how watch development currently stands, but it would be it would make for much more compelling user experiences. Cool. Uh, we're going to get back to the topic of watch development in our Q&A section because we've gotten quite a lot of questions about watch development as well. But for now, we want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the difference between building UI in code or using something like a storyboard or zip files. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor, which is very good friends of the show, Bitrise. Bitrise is quite simply my favorite continuous integration service for Swift and iOS projects. Now, I've been using Bitrise since way before they were a sponsor, and there are many reasons why I like it, but it all really comes down to two words, continuous delivery. Now, this is a really big thing in the web and backend development worlds, where as soon as you commit the change, you run all of your unit tests and your UI tests, and then if everything is green, you just automatically deploy that change. Now, of course, on iOS, we can't just deploy to the App Store on every commit, but what we can do is that we can send a new build to everyone in our team, to all of our testers, and if you're working as a freelancer like I do, then you can also send a new build to your customers on every single change that you make. Now, working this way has some really big benefits, but perhaps the biggest one is that it puts you in this quality-driven mindset, where... As you know that every change you make is going to get distributed, even if it's just within your own team or to your beta testers, you're automatically going to take a little bit of extra care to make sure that things really work, that you didn't cause any regressions, and that they are implemented in a nice way. And that makes a really big difference because it makes things more fun, you get a quicker feedback loop with your designers and customers, and it makes things more motivating in terms of writing tests and automating things and also leads to less bugs in the long run. And Bitrise makes all of this super easy. You just go to Bitrise, you create an account for free, you hook it up to your GitHub profile, and then it automatically scans your project and walks you through all of the steps needed to get your app built, tested, even code signed, and then automatically distributed on every commit you make, just like that. And this is all done in a super nice, fluid web interface, so you don't need to fiddle around with any configuration files or anything like that. So if you don't yet use continuous integration, or you're tired of maintaining your own solution, or you just want to see just how easy Bitrise is to use, then check them out today. Go to go.bitrise.io swift to find out more and to get started for free. And make sure to use that URL since it really helps support this show and all of my work. 
Once again, that's go.go.bitrise.io slash Swift to get started with continuous integration and delivery with Bitrise. Thank you so much to Bitrise for their continued support of this show and all of Swift by Sundell. So uh, we mentioned earlier that a limitation uh, or strength, depending on how you see it, of watch development is the fact that all UI has to be done through storyboards. But on the Mac or on iOS, we don't really have that restriction. We can build UIs pretty much any way we want, uh, build them in code. We can you know, use interface builder, storyboards, etc. And this is a very, very commonly requested topic to talk about storyboards versus zips versus UI and code. So let's do just that. So Christina, uh, doing a lot of watch development, have you become a storyboards fan or uh, do you prefer to build your UI some other ways when you're doing iOS development? So I have a fairly balanced perspective on this, which I guess might not be super controversial. Um, I... From a beginner's perspective, I will definitely say that storyboards are much easier to use just because everything is very visual. I regularly teach an Apple Watch workshop where there's people who from maybe like high school, middle school age, all the way up through college who've never touched Xcode before are able to get a watch app running in less than an hour because building the UI is so simple and and, and the code to get it to run isn't too too difficult. Um, and so especially from a beginner and learner's perspective, I love the fact that storyboards are so easy to pick up because it increases the likelihood that someone will become interested in iOS and watchOS development and, you know, become the next generation of software engineers in this area. Yeah. On the other hand, I would definitely say working in a large team when you're especially especially a team of my size, working in code is much easier in terms of merged conflicts and um and having and you know having other people working in the same file as you because it's basically impossible to merge storyboards. I don't know if anyone has come up with a better way of doing it, but typically when I'm working with someone on my own team, one person has to back out their changes and re-implement them over another person if the storyboard has changed on them in the, in the meantime. Yeah, you know, I, I hear about all kinds of ways that teams deal with this. Everything from like having a Slack channel where you post, I am opening the storyboard now. <laughs> so please, everyone else, don't touch the storyboard for a while. <laughs> uh, to uh, people who have gotten really into like the XML format and are able to like kind of merge these files, you know, with the fingers crossed. Uh, but like you say, it's, it's a pretty big downside uh, of, of storyboards in general, like that you have this serialized XML-based format uh, that can be really, really hard to read and understand, especially when you've made larger changes to a view controller uh, or even multiple ones if you're dealing with a large storyboard and you have to then like kind of merge those in with some other developers' changes. Yeah, definitely. It, there is, um, I would say that probably the best way of being able to work in a large team setting with storyboards is to break up a large storyboard into multiple storyboards. Yeah. And so Apple's made this really easy. I can't remember which iOS version it came out in. I think maybe nine or 10, um, where they allowed you to do storyboard references. And so instead of having to fit everything in one gigantic storyboard, you could reference other storyboards from from a single storyboard. You could split up different features into their own individual storyboard. So 
there will be, uh, it will be less likely that you'll have to deal with, uh, conflicting changes because people will hopefully be working in different storyboards than you. Right. You end up with a little bit of a storyboardception, right? Yeah. <laughs> with a storyboard that has a storyboard that has a storyboard. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's just like kind of general good practices, uh, you know, when it comes to software engineering in general is to split things up, right? Like no one wants to deal with an app as like one big blob. Like we, we like to deal with things as uh, small individual building blocks that we can put together. And I think using something like storyboard references is a good approach if that's what you kind of prefer to do instead of building it out as like one, one big thing. Um, you mentioned earlier that using storyboards and interface builder is a great way to get started. And I couldn't agree more. I think that wh whoever is kind of starting with iOS development, a good starting point is, uh, to use storyboards because not only does that teach you kind of what types of views that are available, because you can see them visually, you can play around with them and see how they behave. Uh, but it also is, you know, it's visual, it's easier, it's more accessible. And something like auto layout, for example, which can be really tricky to wrap your head around in the beginning uh, in code, uh, is, is fairly straightforward for the most part, at least, <laughs> uh, when you're doing it in an in interface builder. So yeah, I definitely agree that it's, uh, it's a really good uh, starting point. Uh, and I think that's also why kind of Apple uh, is using storyboards so much in their examples and things like that, because they want uh, the examples to be kind of uh, approachable by anyone. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. I find that, I find that, you know, engineering in general seems to have this stigma of being hard to get into and, and just not something that's super approachable. And the fact that Apple is going out of their way to try to make it easier for, you know, anyone to learn how to code and just get started is, is really commendable because I know that, you know, from my background, I, I have a degree in computer science, but when I was growing up, like neither of my parents were computer experts at all. I think to this day, my dad still has no idea how to turn on a computer, let alone, you know, be able to do anything on one. And so coming from my background, I, I truly appreciate, you know, Apple creating this space and creating the opportunity for folks like, you know, like 12 year old me to get started in development without any, having any sort of context into it. Yeah, absolutely. Because the way, for example, I got started with programming in general was I was using this like drag and drop tool called click and play to build games. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you need something like that, I think. I mean, some people, they got started with like just like a, a terminal window and uh, learning how to write basic. And, and that's amazing. But for a lot of people, that's, that's really difficult. And having these more approachable tools, I think, is, uh, is really key when it comes to you know, making it more easy for more people to get into building apps and, you know, enabling us to have a more diverse community as well. Totally. I, I wholeheartedly agree with having a diverse community and just because diverse communities tend to make better products, especially when it's representative of your general audience. Um, you know, the ideas and general discussion that you can have with your teammates, uh, tends to be more encompassing of what the gen what, of what the real user experience will will tend to be like and so it just makes for better development um, practices overall yeah absolutely so I think storyboards is great for anyone getting started and for you know medium-sized teams and even large ones if you use them in a kind of in a good way and you build up a good workflow around them um, but personally, uh, the way I usually build UIs is that I use uh, mostly UI in code. 
And um, sometimes I use Zibs as well and Interface Builder because I do like that aspect of Interface Builder as well. Uh, but the thing with, with storyboards that have kind of made me kind of, you know, to use something different in my day to day is um, the fact that it's kind of tricky to do dependency injection in storyboards. And uh, by doing like more stuff in code, uh, whether that is like you use a zip file to to build up your UI and you drag and drop things in and you build a skeleton view and then maybe you have some kind of customization in your code uh, or you just build a view controller, uh, you know, you know, completely in code as well. Uh, it, it gives you kind of more flexibility. And I really also like that. I like the fact that you can start out with something like storyboards. You can build a fully functional UI in there. Uh, but then if you want to dive in and you want to have more control and customize things more and maybe build out your own architecture and use things like dependency injection, you can also dive in and you can kind of also mix these approaches uh, if you want to and you know have the storyboard kind of do your overall kind of application flow and then you have individual zips or, or view controllers implemented in code for the individual screens as well. Yeah, I think one, if you're trying to do the transition from storyboards to code, since uh, it seems to be prevalent in the industry to primarily do, to primarily do UI and code. Um, one of the things that ended up helping me surprisingly was the uh, visual format language or VFL. Right. The ASCII art language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so that, that's actually one of the ways that I, I personally learned how to understand, um, understand UI and code because I, I personally started out primarily doing storyboards and so converting over to UI and code had a bit of a learning curve for me yeah and so um, using VFL was a wonderful stepping stone because then I could start being able to think through the constraints um, in terms of this kind of ASCII art format and then go from there to being able to use layout anchors um, and be able to pin things to certain other elements within the within like a screen layout for example and again, it's a, it's a, it's a great strength of the platform to have these many different technologies that appeal to different people and, you know, what your preferences are in terms of dealing with these things. And for me also, layout anchors was a really, really big kind of milestone where that was like kind of the, one of the first times where I felt like auto layout kind of out of the box finally made sense. <laughs> where it, before, you know, when you were activating these constraints and doing all that in code was was kind of heavy handed. And, you know, it was very, very common to use some kind of wrapper or framework for it. Uh, but now with, with layout anchors, there, there are still a lot of great um, wrappers and that makes it easier to work with auto layout. But layout anchors now in of their own is, is, is still like very, very approachable, I think. And, you know, once you learn kind of the basics and you get around like, you know, thinking about your layout as a kind of result of different constraints, uh, setting up those layout anchors in code uh, is now so much, much easier. And I think that's also, you know, makes it easier to make that transition from having everything in a storyboard to maybe having select parts that are more complex and custom implemented in code. Yeah, not only that, but it certainly makes for much more dynamic interfaces, especially since now we have so many different screen sizes to support. Still not as much as Android, but it's getting to the point where you don't necessarily want to have to worry about each one of these, you know, each one of these screen sizes and hopefully be able to have your current implementation work for, you know, future versions of iOS or future in future screen sizes. Like watch, for example, I didn't realize that we'd even be getting, we, we would have like so many different sizes of watch interfaces, but now it, it is becoming a reality or it has become a reality. So it's really wonderful being able to use stuff like layout anchors and be able to pin to, you know, safe area layouts 
or or the tops and bottoms of views so that you don't necessarily have to worry about, oh man, does my does my app layout look good on a larger screen or a smaller screen? Yeah, absolutely. And stopping to think so much about like pixel counts, right? Yeah. Like in the beginning like uh, of iOS development, everyone was making these like highly detailed textures that were exactly 320 by 480, right? Yep. <laughs> and then as soon as the iPhone 5 came out, you know, that became a problem. Or even with Retina screens, that became a problem. So I think I think we're well past the point now where we have to think more of our UIs as these more fluid things that can expand and, you know, shrink and and really like take on many shapes and forms instead of just being like this you know very specifically uh, designed kind of piece of ui yeah i mean all of us have to do this kind of song and dance every summer to make sure that we're up to date with the latest uh, or compatible with the latest version of ios that's in beta and so this is just one less thing to have to worry about when it comes to um, making sure that we're up to date with the platform so uh, I'm sorry, but I don't think we're going to give a, you know, <laughs> an answer that says, you know, only use storyboards or only use UI and code, because like many other decisions, it all kind of depends. And that's the boring answer. Uh, but I think it does depend on some specific things. And that is, number one, how big is your team? Uh, what problems are you looking to solve with your UI development? Do you want things to be highly custom? If so, maybe going with a more code-based approach might be the solution. Or are you more looking to like build UIs quickly and mostly use uh, system components? And if you're not so concerned with, with, with things like dependency injection with initializers, diving in, customizing things, then I think starting out with storyboards uh, it might be like the, the way to go. Yep, pretty much. Uh, one thing I will say, though, just to add on to the storyboard argument is that if you if you're working very closely with design, being able to see the layouts before they go into implementation do make a lot of difference. Um, and so if you're working very closely with the UI designer, then that is one of that is one of the things that's really nice about storyboards because they can see how well things work on a screen and even be able to tweak things themselves if say for example they want that button two pixels over to the right then they can then depending on how how savvy your designer is with Xcode, then they can do it themselves too. Um, and so there are a lot of really nice things about storyboards, but I agree with you, John, it definitely depends on context. And I think that's why that's such, there are so many differing opinions about it in, in the industry today, just because everyone kind of has their own preferences, but then at the end of the day, it's all about what works for your team and um, enables and just makes development process much easier. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you want to reach that same level of being able to work with a designer in a very fluid way, you kind of have to do a lot of work yourself when it comes to building in code, right? You have to set up like components and, you know, really have these building blocks that you maybe have like a screen in the app where you can see all the different components that you can show the designer and maybe have more like a framework that lays things out for you automatically. So you don't have to go into every single view and, you know, tweak these, these values. Values. So it's it's more involved to do things in code. And, and, and again, it's like this kind of thing where, you know, if you want that power, you can dive in and do it. And I think that's great, but not everyone has to do that. Totally. Ooh, I will say one thing. Um, if you... Have you have you had much experience with design systems at all, John? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, at Spotify, I was working on exactly that for about a year and a half. Nice. Yeah, it seems like it seems like that's kind of the new trend for a lot of the tech companies nowadays. Most of my re most recent projects on was uh, creating a design system for the QuickBooks self-employed app. 
definitely makes things easier from a UI perspective. If you and your designer have agreed on, you know, certain UI components that can be pieced together. It's kind of interesting because I, I, um, I like to play devil's advocate. So I like to argue for both sides. <laughs> nice. It's a, like the, 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 the whole design system concept just definitely makes it easier to create a UI in code because you are able to piece together components as opposed to having to um, drag and drop individual elements into a storyboard, right? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, one thing just just that came to mind would be it would be really cool if you could create custom components within the Xcode interface builder um, and then you could then you could create your your design system components uh, visually too, and then be able to drag and drop those individual elements in. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Hmm. Maybe we should follow radar for this. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. I mean, there is the IB inspectable, which enables you to like use your own custom subclass and see what it would look like in Interface Builder. But it's not the same as having your own kind of like drawer full of objects, right? And they all come with predefined constraints and margins and things like that, which you know you usually have in something like a design system. Uh, so yeah, let's file those radars. I think that would be super cool. <laughs> awesome. Um, so for our last main topic, we want to talk a little bit about how you can grow as a developer. And this again ties into your embracing change topic where you were like seeing, seeing change as like a learning opportunity as a way to grow as a developer. So, uh, as someone like you mentioned before has like recently made what you felt was like a transition from being more junior to being more senior. Uh, what would you say, like, what did that transition entail? Like, what for you is the difference between, like, going from being more like a junior developer to to taking on more like a senior role? So for me, it was a couple of things. Um, I, I know that one of the questions that typically comes up for, like, you know, what does it take to be a senior developer tends to be around, like, okay, so what what framework should I know or what sort of uh, technology should I be learning? Uh, and I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily that because like if you, if you pull any, uh, any random bunch of iOS developers, they're going to have a variety of experiences and be at certain competencies in, in all different sorts of frameworks. Like for me, for example, obviously I am more well versed in watchOS development, but I wouldn't necess- necessarily say like that makes me a senior developer because I know the watch, watch, um, the watchOS platform better than other people. I look at it more from the perspective of essentially you, you've had enough experience to know to see things that have happened before and be able to give advice on whether or not someone should be doing, someone should be developing in a certain way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, after a while, you have encountered a kind of wide range of scenarios and you're able to look at a direction that a team is heading in or a product is heading in or a technical implementation is heading in. And you can see, okay, if we continue down this path, I kind of have an idea of where we might end up, right? Exactly. And I think this is something that really kind of makes a person that is more like a senior developer where you're able to, like you say, give that kind of advice and act as that kind of mentor also uh, to other people and say, you know, not, not necessarily tell people what to do. I think quite the opposite, actually, where instead of telling people what to do, you are more like, you know, sharing your experiences and allowing people to learn from them and draw from them uh, in making their own decisions. I, I find that like 
So, so like a typical example would be like, say, um, say one of my junior engineers comes up to me and asks me a question about, about, uh, building UI and code. I, uh, or ask me a, about a bug that they're having building UI in co- code. And I can let them know, like, well, you know, I, I think I've come across this particular bug when I've done X, Y, or Z things. And then they can kind of go back and be like, oh yeah, I think, yeah, it ended up being, it ended up being reason why. And so then they're able to fix it on their own, but it's not necessarily that you have all the answers to every, you know, to every question out there. It's just that you can kind of guide and guide and coach people in, in the directions that they want to go towards. And it's kind of funny because earlier in my career, when I was more like a junior developer, I didn't have that perception about senior developers. Like I thought in order to become a senior developer, I have to become like an expert and I always know everything and I can, uh, you know, tell people exactly what to do. And I have really strong opinions about everything and I know exactly what I want. And it's kind of the opposite of that, right? Like you, you use your experience, but not to, to kind of like have these really strong opinions and always say this, always this technology or that technology, but rather like understand the requirements and, and make a decision together with the team around those. Yes, and help guide the team. If there is a particular area or direction that you do want the team to go towards, being able to guide the team um, by sharing your experiences um, and potentially helping influence others to understand your perspective, but not necessarily forcing that perspective on anyone in particular. So, uh, given, given these kind of, uh, this kind of definition of, of seniority, uh, what would you say are some of your top tips for someone who is kind of in the situation that you were before, where kind of on the, on the verge of becoming more like, um, more senior, uh, to kind of make that jump and to, to be able to take on more like a senior role? I would say that one of the best things to do is to find the opportunities to teach, coach, and mentor others, because that is one of the best ways that you can learn. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the same for me. Like uh, really learning by teaching is definitely a thing. Yes, totally. And especially coming from the per- perspective of a conference speaker, like I like you probably get this too, John, but like that's one of the reasons I love doing conference speaking is because I can learn about an area that I might not be as familiar with or that I want to explore more and then take that opportunity and, you know, turn it turn it on its head and be able to go from being someone who wasn't as familiar with something to someone who has become more of an expert in it and then teach others and get everybody else's opinions on on that particular topic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, another one of those things, like I mentioned earlier, I thought in order to become senior, I need to become an expert. I also have that perception about blogging, about speaking at conferences and about many different things that before I could do that, I needed to become an expert. And that's something that I, I've really, really like changed my mind about. It's more about the enthusiasm for something and learning more as you go. And also like you're being, being honest about it and saying, you know, I don't have to be an expert about this thing in order to share it and in order to start a discussion around it. Uh, but get together with a bunch of people. Maybe, you know, I have something to teach, teach this person. They have something to teach me. And, you know, it's everyone kind of wins. Yeah, a part of being a senior engineer is is really just changing your attitude and perspective about about different learning opportunities because it's not even about just like learning on your own, but like I learn a lot from my own junior developers and so it's really about opening your mind and being able to understand the perspectives of where everyone else is coming from and then taking that and being able to help others 
help others understand, even if it's even if your perspectives don't necessarily line up. Totally agree. All right. Uh, what do you say? Should we uh, start answering some of the questions that we've gotten from the audience? Absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, so we've got our first question here from Paul Himes. And Paul wants to know how you build and run when working with a watchOS app. So do you use uh, real hardware? Do you use the simulator? Do you deploy the phone target and wait for the watch app to update? And he mentions also that he has some had some re- reliability issues with all these different techniques. So what's your preferred way of, of building and running when you're building a watch app? Um, my preferred way is primarily through simulator simply because it does take quite a long time to do it via real devices. Obviously, you should be testing with real devices, especially once you're, if you're planning to launch the app in the, in the end. But going via simulator is the easiest way because there's much faster turnaround time there. Um, to be able to build and build and visually see that your app is working in the end. Um, the main reason in terms of for the device taking so long is that first it has to build the, the iPhone app onto your iPhone. And then from there, do Bluetooth, um, do a Bluetooth download and build and install on the watch itself. So, if you think that normal, uh, you know, uh, building on device for your iPhone is is long, then t- imagine having to double that because now you have to build on two different devices every single time. <laughs> right, exactly. And do you find sometimes that using the simulator, because, uh, you know, when we are using the simulator for, for iOS, uh, these days, the iOS devices we're, we're targeting are so fast that it's usually not really a problem to use the simulator for the most part. But especially back in the day, uh, it was a big difference between running on your Mac versus running on, on a device. So do you feel like it's the same way that you occasionally do need to run on real hardware, even when developing, in order to kind of get your timings right and everything in terms of delays because the hardware is so much slower. Definitely. Um, aside from aside from performance issues, because there definitely are those issues on devices, the user experience. There's there's things about the user experience that you don't necessarily understand or you don't notice until you're physically handling the device in your own hands. Um, for example, like uh, on iOS, like just having, I think depending on how you use the simulator, most of us just type on our keyboard. And if we're trying to enter in user information, right. <laughs> obviously that's different when you're using the on, you know, the on device keyboard. And so, um, there's so there's like little nuances that make the experience a lot better um, when you're actually there that you can notice that will make the experience better for your end user if you're building on device. And are there any particular things that you found like to increase the reliability uh, when debugging? Is there some kind of tricks you can employ to to make things easier? Um, yeah, that one's pretty tricky because I will say for all the advancements of of watchOS in the past five releases, it's still one of the most finicky platforms to to develop for typically it's it's a lot of the same general um advice that you give whenever xcode isn't really cooperating with you you know um right. quit turn it off and on again exactly yeah <laughs> quit xcode restart it delete derived data um especially if you've never run xcode before or if um, you're building on brand new devices or building on devices that haven't been used for development before it takes several tries of running of you know hitting that play button and being able to build to your watch app and so stopping and starting tends to be the 
the best advice that I could give. Right. And it's something that kind of becomes second nature after a while, right? Like for us now who have done iOS development for a while, like we could probably delete derived data in our sleep, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm still waiting for that touch bar button to come up with a uh, delete derived data whenever I have Xcode open. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, that'll be perfect. Our next question comes from Agis Tsarabuldis, and I hope I got that fairly correct. Uh, and that is about what do you think that Apple should focus on when it comes to making the development experience better when working on the Apple Watch? So we mentioned that, you know, debugging uh, could be more reliable. Are, is there anything else like big that you think that Apple should focus on in terms of the developer experience for Apple Watch? Yes, I definitely think that one of the main one of the main things that um, Apple's Apple Watch apps have on top on top of third-party apps is the fact that they tend to use private APIs in a lot of their apps to make the experience a lot more robust and better for their users. And so when you talk to, you know, typically when you talk to most people, they tend to only use the Apple Watch first-party apps because they're just more full-fledged uh, compared to other things that third-party third uh, developers can do. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing is just exposing a lot of those private APIs because it's the platform just feels so limited. Um, being it just feels so limited because we can't do half the things that Apple first party apps can do, and it makes it a frustrating experience to develop for. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also one of those things where since users are using all these Apple made apps, the expectations of third party apps are the same, right? Because like normal users, they don't care about the implementation details that we have to use this SDK or that SDK or that API is private, right? You can't respond to an app store review to say like, well, that's because we don't have these private APIs, right? <laughs> that's kind of, it's kind of difficult. So I think that it's just about evening the playing field also and to say like, you know, the, since the user expectation is the same for a third party app and for an Apple app, I think also like getting access to those same tools would be really, really valuable. Totally. And I think one of the most obvious candidates there, uh, you know, everyone has their, their pick, of course, but I think most people agree that, you know, getting some form of like full blown UI kit or at least underlying access to some of the drawing code and to things like core graphics, core animation on the watch, you know, would be really great, especially in certain cases for certain UIs. Totally. I couldn't agree more. All right. Our next question comes from Marco Capano. And um, he asks a very interesting question, which is that when it comes to iOS, there's a lot of content out there. There's blogs, there's video tutorials and all kinds of things, but it's not really the same for watchOS. So why is that? And what are some good resources to take a look at? So um, what do you think that there is not that much interest in the community uh, for watchOS when it comes to kind of creating content for it? Yeah, this is really, this is a really fun question for me. Um, ever since essentially it's, it's kind of been interesting seeing the, uh, the rise and fall, I would say, of, of watchOS, um, interest, uh, over the past, over the past few years. Um, yeah, when watchOS for, for history's sake, uh, for context's sake, when watchOS first launched and the first watch kit betas were out, everyone was, going insane like pretty much <laughs> i would say most most developers were were just fiddling around with with watchOS um just to try it out and there even used to be used to be like newsletters specifically dedicated just to watchOS development out there um 
But then uh, once the Apple Watch was launched and developers started realizing that the platform was much more limited, I think the the mindset essentially changed because they realized that, well, you know, we actually it's not a brand new development platform um, in, in a sense because we can't build full fledged apps for this. Um, and aside from that, the the general attitude and um, essentially we came to like this realization where the app was good for good for stuff like fitness, for tracking, for um, health monitoring and um, and quick glance activities um, versus when we were first, a lot of us were first starting out. It's like, Oh yeah, let's build, you know, let's build Twitter for the, the watch. Right. Exactly. Pixel Mater for the watch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, it just, the, there were experiences that just didn't quite make sense. Um, and so while initially in the beginning, there were a ton of different blogs and tutorials and, um, everything for, uh, for watchOS, it has died down significantly. I think just because a lot of companies aren't putting in that time and effort to create kind of these full fledged watch experiences. Um, and then that in turn leads less developers to get involved and to look into it. Um, and so it's kind of this cascading effect, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very, very common that you have something like that where, you know, there's this new shiny technology and everyone wants to, you know, learn it and write about it and share things with it and everyone's excited. And then after a while, it kind of, you know, it becomes normal and the, the excitement kind of dies down a little bit. Um, and uh, like you also mentioned, I think that the, the role the watch plays in our kind of overall kind of device uh, setup uh, has been a little bit different than what most people would have kind of expected in the beginning. And, um, I think there's still a, like a big opportunity out there for, for content to be created for watchOS because it might not be as visible as some of the kind of big high profile iOS apps, but I know for a fact that a lot of developers work on watchOS. And like we mentioned earlier, there are some unique challenges. And I think that none of these things are really solved. I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for people to, to share those things and get those discussions started as well. And yeah, I, I hope to, to play my part a little bit in that too. I, I really want to, to write something about watchOS, uh, next year. Uh, we'll see what that's going to be, but, uh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. And I am hopefully getting back onto the blogging train too. I, it's one of my, um, kind of early, but, uh, it'll be one of my new year's resolutions to get back in and do a bunch of watchOS five, uh, content for this upcoming year. And so, uh, hopefully Marco, you can look forward to that. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Keep an eye on Christina's blog, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, of course. Great. Uh, so that's all the questions that we have time for on this episode. So thanks so much again to everyone who sent in questions for this episode. Uh, yeah, lots of really, really great questions. And it's uh, still one of my favorite parts of doing the show is doing the Q&A and hearing what, what you want us to talk about. Uh, but for now, we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Christina, for joining me on this episode. Uh, it was so much fun to talk to you and so many great discussions about Apple Watch and all different cool technologies. So thank you so much. Yeah, I really, really appreciated you asking me to be on here. I am always thrilled to talk about the Apple Watch and hope that something like this will be able to spur more development 
and uh, more blogs and podcasts and everything in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to uh, read your upcoming, now, you, now you've promised those blog posts, right? <laughs> so now they need to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, where should people go to find your blog, to, to find you on Twitter and things like that? Sure. So my blog is Christina.io. Uh, it's spelled just like my name, my first name. So K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A dot I-O. Uh, you can find me also on Twitter, um, Christina Fox without vowels. So K-R-S-T-N-F-X. Um, and that's the same also as my GitHub link for any of the tutorials that I've posted in the past. Awesome. We'll put a link in the show notes to all of those things. So make sure to check that out and uh, try watch OS out. Maybe you're going to like it and maybe you're going to come up with the next cool app. Yeah. And if you have, uh, and I'm always open to seeing new watch experiences or also other cool watch apps. So make sure you tweet it at me if you have any. Yeah, absolutely. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell, and you can find all the show notes and links from this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 38. Thank you so much again to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check them out and links will be in the show note for that as well. Uh, but most importantly, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.